Let's dive into what we're talking about. And if you're new around here or joining us for the first time in a while, we are in a series that we just launched in the book of Exodus. And let me just ask you as we get going, maybe we'll just do a quick show of hands uh, survey. How many of you do you ever feel out of control? Yeah. If, if you haven't, you just haven't lived very long, right? Um, do you ever feel... How many of you, do, do you ever feel like God plant, planted maybe a dream or a vision in your heart that seems like it's never going to come to pass? Okay. Um, how many of you have ever given up on a dream? Yeah. Um, how many of you have gone in a season of your life from maybe someday to probably never? Okay. Um, how many of you are in or have been in a season of life that you would categorize as a desert season? Yeah, a lot of us, right? Um, how many of you, and this will be a little harder, so some of you I know aren't going to raise your hand, and that's okay. How many, how many of you ever walk around kind of with an underlying sense of anger underneath and just kind of wonder sometimes, like, where's that coming from? Yeah. How many of you have ever, or, or, or now, and you don't have to raise your hands again, but if you want to, you can. Um, how many of you have ever feel like, man, I've just messed things up so bad that God probably isn't interested in using me anymore? Yeah. I think this text today is going to speak to a lot of people in the room. And so we're just going to kind of dive in. But just to catch you up real, real quick to where we are, if you want to turn to your Bibles, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 2 in just a minute. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been seeing this extremely dark period in the history of God's people. Um, the Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, has launched a campaign of oppression and genocide against the uh, Israelites. In fact, all newborn baby boys must be thrown in the Nile River. Baby girls, you could let them live because, you know, they didn't see them as a military threat. They could be actually, uh, women in the culture were treated a lot like property, right? They could be sold. They could be trafficked. They weren't a threat, but the boys must die. And what we saw last week, if you missed, you should go back to our podcast and catch up because especially if you've ever heard the thinking kind of rolling around in our culture that the Bible is just a misogynist text that's all about, you know, promoting the patriarchy. At the very end of last week's message, we finally meet the guy who would become, will become one of the primary heroes in the account of the book of Exodus. But what I love about this, like the start of this book, is that before we ever get to the hero, we have five heroines, five strong, courageous women who act and save a baby boy. And here's the irony and the, the cool thing about like God's economy and all this is the very ones that Pharaoh disdained. Oh, let the girls live. They're not even a threat. It's the women who end up leading to the downfall of this arrogant, wicked Pharaoh. It's a beautiful story. And so you should go back and catch up if you miss. But here, at the end of last week's message, we finally meet baby Moses who is rescued by the princess, Pharaoh's daughter. And instead of drowning in the Nile, he becomes the prince of Egypt, which brings us to verse 11. 
And here's what it says, Exodus 2.11. One day after Moses had grown up. Now, I just wanted to pause because the Bible does this all the time. Um, in that one word, one phrase, one day, 40 years have passed. 40 years. That's a long time. But Scripture does this all the time. There's all kinds of examples of this throughout Scripture where it's like verse and then the next verse, oh, 100 years have gone by. A couple hundred years have gone by. And I mean, you see this with Jesus' life. He's born, right? You have the Christmas texts, and then you see this one scene in one of the texts. He's in the temple. He's like 12, right? So we flip forward 12 years, and then you look up again, and he's 30. What did he do in between, right? The truth is we don't know. We don't know. We, we assume he just did life. His dad's a carpenter. He just worked the family business. He he. He was faithful in the season that he was in. And, and here's why that, I think, should be encouraging for you and I. Because in our life, there are long periods of time where it seems like dramatic things don't happen. Have you noticed that? Perhaps it's God spoke something really clearly to your heart or led you really clearly in a direction, and then it's been years, and you're just kind of walking that up. And it's kind of mundane sometimes. But it doesn't mean that God is not in those seasons. And so, Moses, you know, it says one day, 40 years later, flash forward, and Moses had grown up. He grew up. And, and let me just tell you, and pay attention to this, ladies, because, you know, single ladies, you'll, you'll like this guy. Because he's not just grown up. Um, he became a stellar dude. I mean, he is a manly man. In fact, Acts tells us that he was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and in action. He is a prince of Egypt. He's powerful in word. He's been educated, elite. The guy's Ivy League, right? He's smart. He's strong. He's well-educated. He's respected. He's handsome. Like, this is the guy, right? This is the guy. In fact, he didn't think like a slave. This is really significant. The fact that he is raised in Pharaoh's house. The rest of the Israelites are raised in a slave culture, and they have a mentality. After generations of slavery, they can't imagine a life other than what they live, right? But Moses doesn't suffer from that because he's been raised in the lap of luxury. The world is an open book to him. And so God positions him in this place where he's going to take that and use it to lead a nation. He's a good guy. So that's who Moses is, right? But here's the thing. He wasn't just smart, strong, and good-looking. In verse 11, we see something else about him or about his character. It says this. One day, so we'll finish the verse. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. And here's what you have to know when, when it comes to this situation as he goes out. Um, in Hebrew, this little word watched doesn't mean he just looked at him. It, it had, carries the idea of looking on the situation with concern and compassion. And so Moses wasn't just smart and strong and handsome. Um, actually, I've got three C's for you because pastors are nerdy like that. We like to do that. It just came to me. Actually, I didn't even try. It just came. So uh, I got three C's He's compassionate. He was compassionate. 
I mean, he cared about the plight of his people. Somewhere in this process, God had done this thing in his heart, and he was moved with compassion. In fact, we discover in Hebrews that instead of choosing the life of luxury that he could have, he chose at some point. He made the conscious decision to begin to identify in his heart. Uh, you know, his heart began to identify with his people, and he chose to go down that road instead of holding on to the luxury that he had in the palace. Even though that meant the risking being mistreated and putting himself at great personal risk, he began to identify with his people. He was compassionate. Another C, he was courageous. In fact, three times in this, in this little account, we're going to see him act to confront injustice. I mean, he's a great guy, ladies, right? He's courageous. He's courageous. And he was called. He was called, and he knew it. Like, he understood. God... We know Moses is one of the great prophets of all time, so we don't know if this was something that God just planted in his heart, that God spoke to him at some point, or he just understood. You know how sometimes you just have a sense of like, wow, God has put me in this place for this thing at this time, and he understood that he had a calling, and obviously God had placed him and positioned him and rescued his life so that he could do something about the plight of his people so he could rescue his people. He understood that he had a calling on his life. He's, he's compassionate, he's courageous, and he's called. He has a calling on his life. And he knows it. And so as he goes out one of these times and is identifying with the people, he sees something, a, a slave master brutally beating a slave and finally, enough is enough. He's just got to do something about it. And so here's what he does. He's ticked off. His injustice meter's like off the charts. Some of you are that way. Like any little injustice, my son is that way. I mean, if you tell him something and then it's not fair, oh, watch out, right? Like he has a high injustice meter, of, at least when it comes to anything that's, you know, against him. So a very high injustice meter. And so it says this, looking this way and that, he looks around and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now let me just point out, anytime you find yourself about ready to do something and you have to look this way and that, you know you're about ready to do something shady. Right? It's, I mean, it just is, right? And here's what you got to understand about this. Um, and so he takes action. He is angry. He kills the Egyptian. But before he does it, he looks around to make sure nobody's watching. And then he takes action, and he, and he kills him. And here's what I think is happening here. Um, it's a really interesting passage to study. Because Scripture never comes out right and condemns this action. And so it's interesting. And here's what I think is going on. He has an incredibly noble motive. Moses has a noble motive. He is motivated by his compassion and his courage and his calling. He knows he's called to save his people. 
And so what he ends up doing is taking control of the situation. He ends up taking matters into his own hands. He's going to be the rescuer of his people. And it's going to start right here, today, right now. And he takes, he grabs the situation literally in his own hands and kills it. I mean, Moses is a, a manly man, right? You, you don't want to mess with this dude. He takes out this slave master. But he takes control. And here's, here's the, I've got four things I, I want you to write down if you want to take notes or, you know, write them on your phone or something. And I know the playoff Saturday games are done, so you can probably do that without being tempted to flip over to the, the app. So, so here, the first thing I want you to write down is this. The temptation of gifted people is to play God instead of wait on God. Some of you have incredible giftings, incredible talent, and yet you've seen this pattern in your life. That because of the amount of gifting that you've been given, because of the amount of talent you've been given, in one area or another, your tendency is to try to get it done on your own, and every time you do, you turn around and you create a mess. This is the tendency of gifted people. And, and here's what I know about um, our congregation. I'll just brag on you. You guys are talented. You're gifted. We have a lot of smart, successful people in this congregation that have worked hard to get where you're at. And your tendency is to take matters into your own hands when push comes to shove and try to just ramrod your way through a situation instead of waiting on God. And here's what he does. He kills the Egyptian. He reacts in anger. His temper flares. And you know, some of the dumbest things you do in life are in the heat of the moment, aren't they? You can nod. Think about your life. Um, it's, it's safe to say Moses in this moment did not take a deep breath and count to four. And those with kids are, know what's going on there, right? Um, I, I had to remember that song. I'm, as I'm writing, I'm like, oh, wait, I remember the song because that's Daniel Tiger and my kids were little. And it used to drive my, my son crazy when we'd just say, take a deep breath and count to four, right? Uh, anyway. So it's safe to say he didn't do this. I don't know about your, your regrets in life and the things that, messes that you've made in life, but I, I'm not an angry person. That's just not my, my uh, one of the things that I, you know, primary struggles that I have. And yet, man, some very real regrets in my life have come in anger in the heat of the moment. I bet you can identify too. Right? If you're married, you can identify. Because you've said some things you, you wish you could have taken back, like as soon as they came out, right? You're like, stop. I, I have a, a broken, extended family relationship because of an angry phone call that I made. Now, it wasn't great before that phone call, but there was this injustice thing going off in my heart, and I made an angry phone call, and I got an extended, distant family member that it's just broken, right? And I, you know, and I reached out, tried to fix it, apologize. But sometimes you break things and it can't be fixed very quickly, right? You've experienced that. Action led by anger leads us to all kinds of hurt and regret in life. Proverbs says this, a quick-tempered person does foolish things. 
on, in Galatians, on the opposite side of, you know, the fruits of the Spirit, all the good stuff list, outbursts of anger on the opposite side. Like, the, you don't want to go there side, right? In fact, um, Proverbs 22, 24 says, do not make friends with a hot-tempered person. Do not associate with one easily angered, or you may learn their, ra- their ways and get yourself ensnared. And if you're not an angry, hot-tempered person, you've ever been a, in a bar fight, I bet that's why. Or a schoolyard fight. You were hanging out with the wrong friend at the wrong time, and their short temper got you in trouble, right? I came up with a really cheesy phrase to help you guys remember this. Because guys, oftentimes this is something we struggle with. And we'll talk about why in just a second. Um, And it doesn't really rhyme, and it's kind of dumb, but it might help you remember. So here's how it goes. Uh, You may be a stellar feller, still you must control your temper. (laughs) It's my best attempt, you know? I know. I I listen to some, like, you know, the, the... the mega preachers, you know, the really good ones, and they come up with these great rhymes. I'm like, this is, this is the best I can do right now. <laughs> I don't have as much time as them, I guess. Uh, you must be a stellar, or you might be a stellar feller, still you must control your temper. See, you might remember that, actually. Um, and and here's, what, here's what we know about anger. Is that anger isn't an, a sin in and of itself? I mean, Jesus actually was angry because of what was happening in the temple. But here's the difference. He didn't fly off the handle and respond. No, he deliberately came up with a plan in keeping with the Father's will, and I can just see him braiding that whip, thinking about what he's going to go do, right? And then he runs in and flips over the money changers' tables. And so anger is not a sin in and of itself, but Ephesians said, um, in your anger do not sin. And see, this is where most of us get into trouble. For most of us, it's not righteous, holy anger that gets us into trouble. It's what we do with our reactions that get us into trouble, right? And even if your your anger starts with sort of that righteous indignation, have you noticed that your reaction almost never brings the good you're hoping when you respond in anger? when you lash out in anger. See, men, the way this often works itself out just in a progression for men is because typically men are are larger physically, uh, just biologically, right? Um, Oftentimes, men start to get aggressive, right? And physical. With kids, with wife. For women, here's how that often works itself out in, in your life is you speak words that just cut like a very sharp knife. And in the heat of the moment, the, the words that come out of your mouth, it, if words could kill, they would. And they do damage like that. And what's important to understand about this is, is that anger is often a symptom of actually an underlying idol in our lives. And that's control. That's control. Um, control is, is one of the things that can become a, a 
replacement of God or an idol. When I talk about an idol, a replacement of God in our life. And what you see is all the way back into the garden, we see this time when mankind decided that, that man didn't want to be a child, just a child of God. He wanted to be like God. It's this root idol of wanting to control, wanting to understand and control the situation. And anger oftentimes comes from your wanting to control God and others, but being unable to do so. Do you notice that in your life? You want to control the circumstance. You want to control God. Now, you wouldn't say it that way, but ultimately, you're not happy with what, you, what God has allowed in your life, and because you want to control that, you become angry about it. You know this because most of your anger at your kids comes from the fact that you want to control them, right? I know. I have them. <laughs> you want to stop the behavior. You want to control the behavior, and what you discover very quickly is you you can't control your kids, right? Oh, you can for a while. You can kind of, you know, use your larger size or your ability to take things away or whatever. Then they get to be teenagers, right? And, and all of a sudden, your leverage, at that point, you, your best hope is your influence, really, isn't it? And so, actually, James put it this way in James 1. He said, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from desires that battle within you? In other words, you want something. You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. And here's, here's just what you need to grab onto. Um, because here, here's the thing with gifted people. Control, the root of control is this desire to try to control God, to try to play God in the situation. That's what can be at the root. And so when, that, when you bump up with the fact, and it's a fact that you're not God, and that there's a lot of situations in life you can't control, and that you've got a spouse you can't control, and you've got kids you can't control, and you've got employees you can't control, and you've got a dog you can't even control. What all of a sudden just starts rising up in you is this seething anger that either explodes or it goes underground, and that's really dangerous too. And so it's really helpful just to remember, anytime you find yourself angry, the root of it is ultimately, I'm not getting what I want. Like if you could just pause and say, time out, the reason I'm so angry with my wife, with my kids, is I'm just not getting what I want. That, at least acknowledging that is a really helpful thing, right? I mean, how does somebody go from, from you know, bride and groom to domestic abuse and violence? My wife was scrolling Facebook and saw, like, this friend from years past, now in jail. For manslaughter. It's like, how do you even wrap your head around it? How do you go from there? And it's because we have wicked hearts that want what they want. At some point, you got to acknowledge that, right? I wrote this down that the root of that is that my sinful heart wants to be God and wants what I want. And my seething anger is a symptom of what's going on in my heart. And so ultimately, 
If you want to deal with the surface issue, which is the anger, you got to deal with what's inside your heart. you got to come to God and, and say, God, I need you to change my heart. We have this conversation in our family all the time, right? As you raise your kids, this is a good conversation because what you're trying to do ultimately isn't just to control their behavior. It's to see heart change because that's the only thing that'll stick. You can control their behavior for a little while. You can threaten enough. You can take enough stuff away. But ultimately, what you're looking for is heart change. And so I wrote this down. The first step in overcoming anger in your life, which really is deciding not to try to play God. The first step in overcoming anger in your life is to come to grips with the fact that you are not God and you're not supposed to be. And to acknowledge the fact that that control is outside of your reach. And you could pray a really easy prayer around that. Like, Lord, because I can't control, you can fill in the blank. I just acknowledge you're God and I'm not. So let me influence in a godly way and let go of the anger I feel because I'm not getting what I want. And then ask him to work in your heart. That's a step in the right direction, right? All right, let's move on to verse 13. So we, he sees this. He rises up. He kills the Egyptian. And it says this, the next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked one in, the one in the wrong, or literally the evildoer, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. So here's the, here's the crazy thing. This guy asks him this really compelling question. Who do you think you are? Who made you the ruler and judge over us? And you know what the answer is? At this point in time, who made Moses the ruler and judge over them? Moses. Now, he had an understanding of this calling that God had given him, right? And that somehow God must have positioned him in this place in order to rescue the people. But at this point in time, we don't see anything from Scripture, at least, where God's saying, no, I want you to go out and be the one to get it done. You see, what is he doing? What's the tendency of gifted people? To take matters into your own hands to, instead of wait on God, to play God. And so that's exactly what's happened here. In fact, what, what we know from Acts is this really interesting thing. And some of you have experienced something like this in your life. It says in Acts 7, that Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using them to rescue them. But they did not. And you have people in your life like that, probably. Why don't they just get that God's put me here to help them become who they're supposed to be? Why doesn't my husband just, right? Why won't my kids? And see, this is where Moses is at. Obviously, I'm fulfilling my calling. And, And here's the next thing I want you to write down if you're writing, taking notes tonight. And that's this, that sometimes you know God's will, but you haven't discerned his timing. This is such a powerful thing, I think, if you can capture this because it'll really help you 
Be patient in seasons where you're not sure what he's doing next or where he's given you a glimpse of a dream that he's placed in your heart and you think, wow, this thing really is from God. I think this is really what God has for me and yet you're just waiting. And oftentimes we mistake or we misinterpret what we think God is saying to us or we misunderstand it at the same time. Sometimes it's just a timing thing, right? Where we think because, because God has placed this thing in my heart or because God has um, you know, somehow showed me this or made this promise that it's supposed to happen right now. And if scripture is any indicator, and if my experience and many people in this room's experience is any indicator, many times God, God plants something in your heart that's for years down the road. When God first really clearly and spoke to us about planting this church, um, it wasn't until five years later that we, got, that we got to it, right? When I first had the crazy idea, it was when I was like 19. It took a long time. And now looking back, I'm like, oh, wow, I think maybe God was planting that in my heart all the way back when I was still 19. Good thing I didn't do it then. Hindsight's 2020, right? But here's what you often do, is in those seasons, um, because you you've know what God spoke, but it's just not happening, you just give up on it. Or you conclude it must not have been from him, right? Now, you gotta have humility about this thing too, because something about discerning timing and even discerning his will is that oftentimes we misinterpret. You gotta have a lot of humility because preachers stand up here and say things like, God told me, right? Or maybe you have a friend that says that. Maybe you have a friend that it's like every other day. And you're like, really? Do you like have a hotline or something? How does this work? I think in a lot of those situations, it's really okay to be a little skeptical, right? Because a lot of times we... God may be speaking, but a lot of times we have a lot of our own wishful thinking in the mix, right? As you're seeking God's will for your life or God's will in a season. Or a lot of times, if you read through the prophets all the way through the scripture, a lot of times it's not real clear until you get back and you look and you go, oh, that's what that was all about. And I've seen that in my life a lot. It's like holding on to something that's like, God, I think you're saying this, but... I look back and go, oh, okay. That's what that was about. Now I get it. Even Paul, this like if you if you are super confident in like, man, God said this to me. Here's the thing, in my life as I look back, there's only been a handful of times where I'm like, I know that I know that I know that that was God who specifically led me in that direction or specifically said that. Now, I've plenty of times I've felt the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And I've followed, and I've gone, oh, wow, right? Like, but I'm talking about big deal stuff, like around direct life direction, you know, starting a church, moving across, going to Africa. For me, that was big deal stuff. I don't know what your big deal stuff is. But there's only been a handful of times. But there's been plenty of times where I'm like, oh, I think that's what God's saying. But I got to hold that with humility because we don't hear right a whole lot of the time. 
fact, even Paul in Acts 16, Paul and his companions, they're traveling around and it says they keep trying to go to different places, right? And then the Holy Spirit keeps, keeps them from going there, which I don't quite understand how that all works, right? But the point is, he doesn't really know. He's just trying some different things. And too oftentimes, I think it's a great example. It says eventually, um, eventually, it's just they kept trying to go into different areas, Bithynia, and it said the Holy Spirit wouldn't let them. And then during the night, he has a vision that says, hey, come over here. Come to Macedonia. And it's like, law, right? Because those are those moments occasionally where you're like, man, God led so clearly. I just knew that I knew that this was the direction I was supposed to go. And those are wonderful moments. And oftentimes those are highlight moments. They don't happen all that often. And you know what you do in the middle, in between those times? Is you keep going in the direction that God's called you to go in. You just keep following him. You don't give up. You don't just sit down and do nothing. You just keep following the last thing he told you to do. All right. So, verse 15. Here's what happens. See, Moses knew God's call on his life, but he had not done a very good job of discerning the timing on the whole deal. He thought, this, I'm going to rescue him, and it starts today. But God had other plans. How about another 40 years of plants? Verse 15. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian. Now, this is just conjecture, but I bet, I bet Pharaoh may have been waiting for an excuse to get rid of Moses anyway. Because as, as he's growing up, what you see is he starts identifying more with his people. And so, you know, he just needs a good excuse. He can't take out his little, you know, his grandson with no good reason. And so he's finally got the excuse he needs. And so Moses does the only thing he can do. He just run away. He runs away. And he heads out to the desert in this place called Midian. And I'll show you where that is because it's a long ways away. It's like all the way down on the Sinai Peninsula around the Gulf of Agaba think is what they call that. It's a long ways away. I mean, this is way out there. It's Midian. He went there to live, and he sits down by a well. It says, now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. Again, see, I mean, this compassion thing that motivates him and this injustice thing, it's like, it goes, just goes off in his heart. He is a great guy. And that's what's so interesting about the story. He is a great guy. He has a temper problem, which will get him into trouble multiple times in his life. Can you imagine having to go up and explain to God why you just shattered the two tablets that he personally wrote with his finger? I don't know how that conversation would have gone, right? Anyway. Later on, he strikes a rock. That was a really bad move too, right? So he, this is an ongoing issue for him. But in the midst of all that, he's a stellar guy. And he stands up. He runs off a whole band of shepherds and protects these women. Come on, ladies. Yeah. He's a stellar guy, okay? 
And so verse 18, when the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early? Evidently, this was an ongoing thing. They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And dad says what any good dad of seven single girls would say at this point. And where is he? Rule asked his daughters, why did you leave him? Invite him to come have something to eat. He's thinking, Egyptian? Money, because they're the most wealthy culture. And little did he know, he was actually talking to the prince of Egypt, right? The banished prince. And so verse 21, Moses goes with them. Verse 21, Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah. Now this probably, again, this is months, if not perhaps even more than a year or two. We don't know how long this process took, but Moses goes, he stays in the household, he begins tending the flock. Eventually, he's given this daughter as his wife. And then he has a son, verse 22. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. Now, most of us just kind of skip over this to the next chapter. Forty years, guys. Forty years. Forty years in this season. Forty years wondering, gosh, I wonder what all that stuff got. I wonder where that calling was about. I must have got that all messed up and wrong. I must have been wrong about that whole thing. Man, or man, I blew it. I just blew it. And now all I am and all I'm going to be, this is my identity. I'm a foreigner in a foreign land. And some of you, that's exactly what you feel right now. And the place you're at in life is just like, I am stuck in a foreign land. I'm so far away from the place I ever thought I'd be, ever wanted to be. But you know what? What can you do? You just put one foot in front of the other, right? What does he do? Well, he does the thing to do. He gets married. At least there's a beautiful girl. Has a baby. He goes out and he tends the sheep. The sun comes up. The sun goes down. He takes the sheep out. Brings the sheep back. Grows a beard. Yeah, because he's Egyptian. So, you know, his beard starts growing now. Pretty soon, Cecil B. Mills shows up, and he's got an epic beard. Yeah. But you get the point. 40 years. 40 years. And here's what you got to know about these desert seasons, because God uses them all throughout Scripture. Uh, the, the desert is where God turns confidence into character. He has self-confidence. Oh, he has that in spades. He knows I'm, I'm all that, ladies. I'm the rescuer. I'm the, I'm the one who's going to redeem my people. He's got confidence covered. But it's in the desert where God turns confidence into character. And don't miss next week. Because next week, we're going to see a very different Moses. Moses. 
We're going to see a Moses whose, whose confidence God has taken, whose self-confidence God has turned into humility. And here's what you got to know about this. God is very patient getting you to a place character-wise that he wants you to be in order to fulfill his purposes for you. And for some of you, that may be good news. And for some of you, that may not be good news in this moment, but it is good news. God is very patient in those seasons to allow you to walk through seasons in order to accomplish what he wants to accomplish in you before he's going to accomplish through you. But he'll get you there. And the last thing I want you to write down is this. That God still works through broken, imperfect people. He still does. And I think that's such encouraging news. Because Moses is broken and imperfect. Now, he's, he's a heck of a guy. But he's still broken and imperfect. And what we'll discover in him is... Life has a way of beating you down, doesn't it? But God still will use him. And here's the amazing thing about this whole perspective, and it was kind of fun studying it, is when you get to the book of Hebrews, you have this incredible description of Moses. And here's what I do looking back. As I read Acts and as I read Exodus, I go like, really? Because what I see was a guy who got ticked off, responded in anger, had a God complex, and then had to run away to the desert for 40 years. But here's how he's remembered in history. And I thought this was so beautiful. Here's what's so beautiful about this. I think this is the way that God sees you and I through the blood of Jesus. If you're here and you put your faith and trust in him. See, us, here's how we remember is, man, remember when I did that stupid boneheaded thing and now I'm in the desert. I wonder if God will ever be able to use me again. I think that's how we see it. But here's how God sees it. He knew, he knew Moses' heart. He knew the things he struggled with. But he knew his heart. And he knew his heart was for God. And his heart was filled with compassion. And look at what Hebrews says. It says, by faith, Moses, when he'd grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ. Literally, Christ means Messiah. And Messiah had been prophesied back in Genesis, right? He, he regarded disgrace for the sake of Messiah as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who was invisible. <laughs> That's like mic drop right there. But the author of Hebrews doesn't. He goes on for another like 50 verses. It's epic, right? This is the faith hall of fame. And this is God's like attaboy, Moses. Attaboy. 
And this, I think, should be so encouraging because God does. He still works through broken and perfect people who love him and who choose to obey him and who choose to get up and go, you know what? That was yesterday. That was yesterday, but today, I'm gonna follow him. That was in my past, and yeah, I blew it. But today, I'm gonna walk. I might have a limp now, but I'm gonna walk forward. Uh, the founder of the Vineyard Movement, he has a saying, John Wimber says, never trust a man or a leader who doesn't walk with a limp. Life has a way of doing that to us. Our sin has a way of doing that to us. But you know what you do? Today's a new day. You may be in the desert. What do you do? What do you do? You get up. You thank him for the day. You kiss your wife. You pat your new, new baby on the head, right? You take the sheep out. You take the sheep in. And you wait on him to step in and move in your situation. Would you stand? I'm just going to leave it there and just pray for you. Father, thank you for my friends. Lord, if there's anyone in this room that has not taken that initial step of saying, yes, Jesus, I want to follow you, in their own words, with their heart, would they just call out to you right now and commit to following you with their lives? And Lord, would your grace meet them just like your grace has met so many of us? Would you bring them into your family? And Lord, for that, that person in the room that's just going, wow, I don't know if God could still use me. Would you just confirm in their heart that you still use broken people? And Lord, for that man or that woman who just struggles with this control thing and has so much anger, would you help them? Would you just move on their hearts and change that thing in them? Lord, those in the desert, encourage them that you're working in their hearts. And we pray these things in your name, the name of Jesus. Amen.